Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Professor Michael Girard. Michael, how are you doing? Good. Good to see you. Good to see you too. And uh, I guess I saw you before because I I come to you because you were on a panel discussion with previous guest, Mai Van Rossum, about green amendments. Uh, so I saw you talk. Okay. And so constitutional amendments, well, I guess, I think national, but I think you have to get there by state, working at the state level. But uh, it's something that's been very interesting to me. And I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a uh, constitutional scholar, although abolitionism has been, for me, a big role model movement. And the 13th Amendment in particular, it's something that I don't think anyone would have expected to pass up until it did. And yet, I see it as something that took a the most divisive issue in American history and made it something that unites us now. I don't know many people who want to repeal the 13th Amendment. I'm sure they exist, but I haven't met one. And uh, so I wanted to learn more about constitutional law and amendments re- relevant to sustainability. It seems to me, I guess something driving me a lot is that Lincoln said we had a house divided. We're protecting some people's rights and then protecting other people's rights to own those people. That's, I'm not sure the right way to put it. And I think today that I look at pollution as fundamentally destroying life, liberty, and property. And we have a constitution that it seems to me wants to protect life, liberty, and property, and someone else's right to do something that will destroy their life, liberty, and property. And it feels like if there's a fundamental contradiction in that document, then we can do all we want with markets and legislation and technology, but it feels like something higher up and more, either higher up or more fundamental is has to be worked on. And the first time I thought about a constitutional amendment on sustainability, I thought, well, that's not possible. Don't waste your time. Don't waste brain power thinking about this. Then I met Maya Van Rossum. She's working on it. Tia Nelson has been on the podcast. Her father, Gaylord Nelson, as a senator from Wisconsin in 1970, proposed a constitutional amendment. And when I saw you talk, I thought I really would like to get this guy's views. And so here we are at Columbia University, where I got several degrees. You did too. You're teaching here. I guess maybe the best place to start would be your background and how you happened to come to be on Maya's uh, on the panel with Maya. Well, very briefly, I grew up in Charleston, West Virginia, which is a town dominated by the petrochemical industry. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in a highly contaminated place, which was the origin of my interest in environmental issues. I came to Columbia to go to college. I was here for the first Earth Day in 1970 that Gaylord Nelson helped uh, spur. I wrote my senior thesis on the politics of air pollution in West Virginia and worked for an environmental group for a couple of years and decided to become an environmental lawyer. So I went to law school with that desire to become an environmental lawyer. When I graduated, I went to work for a little boutique law firm that did environmental law, and I ended up practicing environmental law in New York City for 30 years. Uh, In 2009, I moved into academia and joined the faculty of Columbia Law School to teach environmental law and energy law and climate change law. 
and I founded and direct uh, the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law, which focuses on legal issues pertaining to climate change. So when you, did you start practicing law in the 70s? I feel like there's a big shift in the 70s from passing a lot of legislation to not passing any more legislation. Yeah, I graduated from law school in 1978. All of the major U.S. environmental laws were passed between 1970 and 1990. We had this 20-year period of tremendous environmental lawmaking. But since then, the partisan divisions have been such that Congress hasn't passed or repealed any major environmental laws. They they amended one, the Toxic Substances Control Act, and then we have in 2022 the Inflation Reduction Act, which is mostly about subsidies. It's a very important enactment, but it's not really a new environmental law. So we've had more than 30 years without any new environmental statutes, and yet EPA and all the other federal agencies have to deal with new problems using statutory tools that are more than a generation old. Do you mind if I go back to the beginning and ask some personal questions on when you grew up, did you experience the pollution or is it is it something you saw far away from where you were, but it's nearby or did you, I mean, how personal is this? We live literally on the banks of the Kanawha River, uh, which is a receiving water for the uh, the chemical plants upstream and downstream. Uh, coal barges uh, pass by every day. The uh, the story was if you uh, dipped your toe into the Kanawha River, it would dissolve. I never tried it, mm-hmm. but we all knew that it was uh, it was filthy. And when I go back now, people are boating. I'm not sure if they're swimming yet, but there's recreational activity in the in the river. It has become immensely cleaner. Uh, due in large part to the Clean Water Act of 1972. And I can't help but think also probably a lot of industry got moved overseas but didn't decrease, just got moved somewhere else. I don't know if that's... Some of it. Uh, Some of the chemical industry uh, left town. Uh, Some of it went abroad. A lot of it stayed and cleaned up. You know, a lot of it went on pollution control equipment and is not nearly as dirty now as it used to be. And... So fast forward to, so was that in your heart of like, I want to do something about this? Yes, I was, I became very concerned and it, it happened that the summer between high school and college, I worked on a, on a gubernatorial campaign for a fellow who was a family friend who was running on an environmental platform. He got nowhere, <laughs> but that was probably the first I heard people talk about environmental issues and they, and it really, um, really hit home. And since West Virginia has traditionally been a coal mining state, environmental issues, of course, are very important there. So you're in law school in the 70s, seeing this legislation passing. Did you want to pass more legislation? Did you want to work with existing legislation and go after corporations or polluters? Well, whatever it was that would work. I mean, at at the time I was involved in law school, I became involved in what was, at the time, New York City's largest environmental controversy, which was the proposed construction of a highway that would have been called Westway, would have involved filling in 10% of the cross-section of the Hudson River and building an interstate highway and a tunnel through that landfill, uh, which sounds like an environmentally horrible thing to do. And the $2 billion that it would have cost to build a highway, 90% of it 
from the federal government could have instead be used for mass transit. And so I became very active in the fight against that highway, and we ultimately succeeded in killing it in court after many years of, of fighting. But this was during the era when new environmental laws were still being enacted, and it was a very exciting time. Oh, the Congress just passed law on cleaning up hazardous waste sites, so we have to figure out what that means and how to work with it. Now, the 70s, I think, because it also sounds a lot like Robert Moses, but it sounds like, I think he was out by the He was gone. He was gone by the late 60s. And so people often say that this is the kind of highway that Robert Moses would have built, but under the new environmental laws, most importantly, the National Environmental Policy Act, which Nixon signed on New Year's Day 1970, uh, got in the way and, and prevented that kind of uh, big environmentally destructive project from going forward so easily. And did you know, did people, so you talked about something from 1970 to, to 1990, did people know that it was stopping? I mean, was it only like 30 years later that people looked back and said something stopped? Or Well, no. I mean, I think when Congress passed the Oil Pollution Act and the Clean Air Amendments Act in 1990, nobody knew, well, this is it. <laughs> there aren't going to be any more. But we saw the partisan divide. Newt Gingrich bears a lot of the, you know, it's at least symbolic, a lot of that. And things were were making, were getting much harder to get done. But no, we, we had no idea how long the drought would last. And today, I have no idea how long the drought will continue. So that tells me that there's a lot of, if you're in law, work on the environment and sustainability, you're working with these old stat. I mean, I don't know if they're old, but I mean, statues, you're just working with what, what you've got. Is there a push to get more, le to legislate more? Is there, or, I mean, I feel like the Supreme Court these days is whittling away at those things. Well, sure. I mean, in 2008, uh, we thought we were about to get a climate change law called the Waxman-Norchid Law. And both the Democratic candidate for president Barack Obama and the Republican candidate, John McCain, supported it. And it passed the House, but it died in the Senate. It was unable to get the 60 votes that you need to get over a Senate filibuster. So there was a lot of optimism in 2007, 2008, that this climate change law would, would pass. And that was around the time that I founded the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law and similar Centers were founded at Georgetown and UCLA law schools, and we all thought we would become heavily involved in the implementation of this great new statute, which hasn't happened. There's a little voice in me, and it's like, all right, let's get this going. There's academia, and then there's politics, and oftentimes leadership comes from neither of these places. Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Mandela, the, you know, I feel there's a lack of that in the U.S. right now, in the world right now. What, the lack of leadership on environmental issues? Getting public support for these things. Well, there's a lot of public support, but there's also a lot of public opposition. So it's not as if most people are apathetic. An awful lot of people care very deeply, mm -hmm. but we also have powerful forces pushing back in the other direction, which is a difference from where we were in the 70s and 80s when these great environmental laws were passed. All of them were passed with either unanimous votes or close to unanimous votes in the House and the Senate. 
and almost all of them were signed by Republican presidents. We once did have a true national consensus on strong environmental protection. That's gone. We no longer have that. And we now have one party that does everything it can do actively to block environmental action and to try to roll back what we have. Yeah. You said how people do care. I think there's something, an unusual situation is I think almost everyone in this country is on both sides of this issue. We're concerned that sea levels will rise and our children are on all these problems. And we want to see our mom on the opposite coast. And we were on both sides of the, of the issue. I mean, a typical, probably most listeners spend something like five figures a year on extracting and um, burning fossil fuels, whether it's through filling their gas tank or air conditioning or their airplanes. And they also, they, they don't want the effects of pollution. And so I think everyone, I think we're all really twisted up inside. So I think support is... I, that's at the individual level. I think that would characterize something like 330 million of us in this country. And at the cultural level, we're torn up about it. So very, very few people have the radically low carbon lifestyle that you do. And we can't expect them to. And uh, we need to get a lot of votes from a lot of people who have, you know, American consumption patterns, which are much, which, which I share, which are much too high, certainly for the future of of the planet, but there's a lot that can be done, an enormous amount that can be done with, with the law, especially if we had, but not only if we had new legislation to move in the right direction. So let, I have to say, maybe low carbon, but it's also low impact because whenever people only talk about, if people focus on climate, almost guaranteed they're going to come up with something that will increase the devastation in some other place. Okay, I was using carbon as shorthand, but, yeah. in, any, but in any event, I know what you're saying. So when you, how did you and Maya meet? I want to get to amendments. And so you and Maya, it was at the, it didn't sound like that was the first time you met on that panel. Uh, no, I've, I've met her before. Yes. Did she pursue, how did, how did you come to know about amendments, the constitutional amendments? I follow environmental law very closely and, and this issue is a prominent issue and Maya is a, a very prominent proponent of trying to adopt more green amendments. All right. So the idea of a constitutional amendment on whether state or, or federal on uh, sustainability, long before Maya met you, that had been something you thought about? Sure. And New York State adopted a constitutional amendment on the environment in the election of uh, November 2020. And that issue had been poking around in New York for quite a few years. It only was able to cross the finish line when the Democrats took over the state Senate. Uh, and for years, it had been passed every year by the state assembly, but blocked by the Senate. And then when the Senate flipped, it was um, able to move forward, and then it was put on the ballot. Is it too broad a question to ask, what's the history of, uh, let's say in New York, but also at the federal level, is it easy to characterize the history of pursuit of a constitutional amendment? Other than New York's, I think that all of the state constitutional amendments we have for a clean environment were passed in the early 70s. Uh, the early 70s was the era, of, uh, you know, was the height of the era of environmental lawmaking. 
and uh, it really hasn't come back yet. So the New York Amendment was, uh, 2020 was the first in a generation. There are now a lot of efforts, some of them led by Maya, to get more, but, uh, but we don't yet have that. Are there other people working on it? I feel like she's on the vanguard. Yeah, no, there, there are some other people uh, working on that, but she's certainly the most prominent leader working for that. There are a couple of other groups that are doing it. How does it feel for you like, to see it happening? Is it, are you enthusiastic about it, or is it something that you welcome, that you, look, that you hope to do? Oh, it? I certainly welcome it. I think it would be wonderful if we had more of these. We saw the case in Montana where it had a terrific result, and I'd love to see that in more states, which is not to say that I'm confident it'll happen, mm-hmm. uh, which I say about a lot of things, but, but I think it would be terrific if it did. All right, so how does it... I think the the amendments as... Let's talk Held versus Montana, the, the case that you and uh, Maya were talking about on that panel. Briefly, what does it allow... Is, is, so it guarantees the right to a clean environment, roughly speaking, for the citizens of that state. Right. That means that if that doesn't mean that if you pollute and if you litter on my lawn, it's not that. It's something. It's the government, right? They're suing the government for not protecting things. Can you clarify that? Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not at all clear that it creates a private right of action. I mean, that it creates. I should say the ability to to have civil lawsuits like against polluters. It's primarily aimed at at the government and preventing the government from taking anti-environmental actions, which the state of Montana was was doing. And there are arguments that it compels them to act in a more affirmative manner, but we don't know that for sure. We don't have a court ruling that goes that far. So that would take someone starting taking a case and saying, you're not protecting me enough. You, the government, are not doing enough to protect me, something like that? Right. So in that, in the Montana case, when the lawsuit was filed, Montana had on the books a an energy policy that was explicitly pro-fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And it also had a requirement that the state officials, when making energy policy, can't even consider climate change. Uh, the lawsuit was filed. It survived various early motions as it was Approaching the trial date, the state legislature repealed the state policy that was explicitly pro-fossil. That's not to say they changed anything else, but but they ex- explicitly repealed that policy. And so that took away that claim, because one of the claims of the lawsuit was that it was unconstitutional to have an explicitly pro-fossil policy. But we still had the, the policy that prohibited state officials from even considering climate change in in making energy policy. So that's the policy that was the subject of the trial, and that's the policy that the state court found was unconstitutional. But it was not before the court to—there wasn't the demand before the court to compel, you know, closing coal mines or or, or building wind turbines or anything affirmative like that. It was just to, which I think was smart because what they ultimately won on was what they had the best chances of winning on. But they established some important principles. Does that mean someone, I feel like someone could then 
okay, like a ratchet. The, okay, we've got this before. Let's see, can we then sue to the state to close some things some months? Right. So the, the, the trial court decision in the held case is being appealed by the state government to the state Supreme Court. So we'll see what the state Supreme Court does. If, if that court upholds the trial court, and especially if it has good language about the strength of this amendment, then it, I would expect to see, we'll see more lawsuits. Uh, but I think everybody's waiting to see what the state Supreme Court does. It feels weird. I'm, I'm sure it makes sense to them, but that the state would say, no, we're going to fight you to protect this, this policy. Well, but it's it is in, it is genuinely a pro fossil fuel state. It has some of the uh, you know it has major uh, coal mining and and so forth. And the leadership of the state. I'm not saying most of the population, but that certainly the 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 elected governor and the majority in the state legislature loves fossil fuels. So of course they're going to try to fight that decision. It still feels weird <laughs> that. Yeah, it still feels weird. So, okay, so New York State passed something similar. And because my points out that Pennsylvania, New York, Montana are the only ones that have what qualifies as a, for her definition of a Green Amendment. Yeah, yeah. She has a fairly narrow definition. There are some other states that have provisions about environmental rights in their constitutions, but they're not as self-executing. So Hawaii has one. And there's a trial that's going to happen next year in Hawaii on its policies and, and whether the transportation policies of the state of Hawaii that favor motor vehicles violate the environmental provision of the Hawaii state constitution. So there are a couple of other states out there that have some language. And, okay, there's a couple of directions. Okay, so New York State, I live in New York State. I live in New York City. I pick up litter every day. There's garbage everywhere. And it wasn't always there. Okay, in Washington... Why do you say it wasn't... I mean, when you say it wasn't always there... Oh, actually, I should... Okay. I came to New York in the 80s, and there was plenty of litter then. It's much more plastic now. I guess it seems more poisonous and seems not biodegradable so much anymore. Not that it was before, but less so now. Yeah, I mean, I came to New York City in the late 60s, and there's always been litter on the streets, some streets more than others. They clean up Park Avenue faster than they clean up Lenox Avenue. And certainly everywhere, a higher percentage of it is probably plastic. I agree with that. And yeah. Now I got I to gotta hopefully not belabor the point. But So I live by Washington Square Park. And in the pandemic, it got just so much more litter than ever before. And also because of the, of the, uh, the drug use there and people not living there, but pretty close to it that the amount of garbage is tremendous. But also, every, I don't want to say every, but many of the restaurants and cafes around there, they are moving more and more toward not having, like you can't eat there. You get stuff in packaging and then people go to the park and eat it there. And, you know, whether it's pizza or falafel or coffee or whatever, they, they walk out with their coffee cup. They don't sit there. And then the garbage goes into, into the garbage cans are filled by noon. But the places that give you the cup don't have garbage cans for me that you're right. So there's a one-way flow of garbage from these places that are profiting from it to the public. Now, I'd love to get into the whole issue of this country has this big issue with, there are many people who oppose government uh, socialized medicine, 
but they don't seem to oppose socialized sanitation systems. And so there's this perverse incentive there. But I would like to do something to... Oh, and so there used to be much more restaurants where you would have like a reusable plate and a reusable fork and a reusable glass. And people would... That's been much more moving over toward disposable everything. I mean, the city council could do something about that if it wanted to. Uh, you know, some places have passed uh, bans on uh, disposable utensils, and New York City did pass a, a law saying that uh, takeout restaurants can't give you disposable forks and knives unless you ask for them. So, you know, that's a move in the right direction. The council could pass a law saying that every takeout restaurant place has to have a, a, a garbage can for use by uh, customers, you know, they, just like they have to have a, a restroom. So all that, all those kinds of things could be imposed by the city. They could be. Also, there's this state constitutional amendment. Is that, can I use that as a citizen? Because I think there's a lot of concern about whether the state constitutional amendment is going to be used for very small things or is going to be used for NIMBY kind of matters where somebody doesn't want an apartment building nearby or doesn't want housing or a homeless shelter nearby and they use it to try to fight that. So so the state constitutional amendment is in New York is very new. There are only a couple of decisions under it. Many of us are eager to have the first appellate court decisions on that be strong decisions and come out of strong cases. You know, there's the the saying, bad, bad cases make bad law. And so if somebody tries to use it to fight litter, it might not go so well. And so we're, we're hoping that at least the, the first big cases that go up to the high, the top court in New York Court of Appeals are, are strong cases that are more likely to yield a strong decision. Do you know, are there any in the, in the works? Not very far along. I mean, well, there, there's, there are a couple of decisions concerning a um, a landfill in upstate New York, where the trial-level court ruled for the plaintiffs and said that the, uh, this landfill, which mostly receives New York City trash, was causing uh, odors and other environmental problems that are possibly in violation of the state constitutional amendment. And that's going up on appeal. We'll see how that goes. That, that's a difficult case because the garbage that generates that's in New York City is going to go somewhere. And so are you just moving it to some other place that's going to receive the order? So that's that's not necessarily the perfect case. But that's the one that's furthest along. Now, I described it as litter, but that's because that's the most visible aspect of it. But it's packaging that, and coming from Amazon, coming from all the Doritos, and I think it's mostly around stuff that we put in our mouths. But that landfill is mostly filled with, I think, a lot of the stuff I'm talking about. And if we didn't allow the single use, I don't know how to define it, but litter would be, litter doesn't do it justice, except to people who, for whom, for whom it's as disgusting as it, is, as it is to me. But serious health problems, environmental problems, huge issues for everyone in the state. When I ride my bike upstate, I doubt there's many times I go more than 50 yards without passing litter by the side of the road. And it's not like a little bit. It's, and I guess I'm, you know, when 
I don't know if this is a city or the state that said that uh, no smoking in, in the workplace. And everyone, the restaurants were like, we're going to go out of business. Yeah, it was a city under Mayor Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. And of course, they didn't go out of business. It, it turned out fine. Yeah, and, and even better than that, even more than that, that they they said people can just take the path train across the river to, to New Jersey. And two and a half years later, New Jersey had to pass a law not allowing smoke in their workplaces because people were going to Manhattan. And if you go to Manhattan for clean air, <laughs> you got a problem. So I can imagine this being something that people would... I don't think there's many people who want to restore smoking in the workplace. And I think that if we stopped having so much packaging allowed, I think people would... I would imagine a similar process. Oh, and there's no question that plastic waste is emerging as a major environmental problem. And it's causing major problems in the ocean for for aquatic life. It has all kinds of difficulties. And the manufacture of plastics is the lifeline for the oil industry. Uh, because as as we moved uh, away from, uh, from internal combustion engines toward electric vehicles, uh, the oil companies want to have something, someplace to sell their oil. And selling it to manufacture plastics is emerging as, as the major new use of oil. So it feels like, it's fair for you to say it was litter, but I'm really talking about the profligate use of the stuff that to me, I mean, you, you say it's the ocean, there's ocean plastic. It's in our veins, in the placenta, and sperm counts down by half, birth defects up by, I don't know the numbers there. I mean, this is serious business. This is not like an eyesore in a park, although that's as if that wouldn't be enough anyway. But underlying this, this discussion and your your discussion of the of of the amendment is, is really the question of what's the appropriate role of the courts as opposed to the legislatures and, and the executive branch. And this question of the separation of powers underlies a lot of environmental litigation and a lot of the litigation um, brought under green amendments and brought under various constitutional and other theories. Question is, should the courts be making solid waste policy or or pollution policy or or lots of other kinds of policies, or should Congress and state legislatures and city councils be making those policies? I think ideally most people would agree that it ought to be the legislatures that are doing that, that they have better fact-finding ability. They can balance more issues. There, there are lots of reasons for that. They're democratically elected, unlike most judges. But at the federal level, we have paralysis. We don't have paralysis in many of the states and many of the cities. So we are seeing a lot of states, blue states, and a lot of cities, almost all of which are blue anyway, adopt very strong environmental environmental laws and uh, not leaving it to the courts. The, the courts can be sort of a blunt instrument in this kind of case. So the, a situation where some states are going one direction, some states are going another direction, sounds a lot like preceding the 13th Amendment, that there was a, it was roughly 50-50 on states of pro or against slavery. And that that's why I, it seems to me a, a federal constitutional, a U.S. constitutional amendment seems, let's leave aside how we would pass it and so forth, because no one knew how to pass the 13th either, and it passed. Of course, 
all sorts of... And we had a war along the way. Yeah. Although, I mean, people saw that war coming and people see a big collapse coming here. So it's not like there's not a, a similar situation of something's looming on the horizon of, I mean, there's water rights. People talk about wars over water rights in the Southwest. And and as you said, you said the New York City waste has to go somewhere. That's taken as a given that the waste was produced in the first place. It doesn't have to be produced. I often say it's people describe it as a sanitation issue, but it's a too much, I see it as a too much production issue. And so, yeah, and the U.S. environmental laws are just about all end of tailpipe laws. The idea is that you're going to create the pollution and then you clean it up. So you drive cars, but we have a catalytic converter at the end of the tailpipe. And we, and at the time they were burned, they, they were enacted. Yes, you burn coal to make electricity, but you have a scrubber and so forth. So they really were not passed with a reduction in consumption in mind. And that is a major shortcoming of the U.S. environmental laws. And I would say of, of, of pretty much uh, globally, we don't have anti-consumption laws. Uh, we have anti-pollution laws. <laughs> but you can still go ahead and and consume. You, you, we, we do have energy efficiency laws, which reduce consumption, energy efficiency, and energy conservation laws. In the West, there's more attention paid, of course, to reducing water use since it's such a such a big issue there. But that is a a, a fundamental characteristic, and we now recognize drawback of environmental law, and it's aimed at pollution control, not at consumption reduction. So can I share with you some of the of my research of, of uh, there's this big, uh, mine is going for, you have a right to a clean environment. And that's what Gaylord Nelson did. And maybe I'm oversimplifying. The 13th Amendment is something different. It says you're not allowed to do a certain type of thing. It doesn't define what that thing is. I mean, you can't enslave human beings. Yeah. And I mean, Okay, one of the two big things to know about abolitionism is that it worked and it also didn't work because slavery still exists in the world. It no doubt exists in the United States, not like it did before, but it couldn't absolutely stop something. And at least it's illegal. Yeah. So it's, as far as I know, it's illegal everywhere in the world. Yeah. And global human culture, I think, has changed too, that it was before the 18th century, I think slavery was just, oh, you know, slavery exists. And... Now, I think, while there are certainly people who practice slavery, and I, I think that generally the world opposes slavery. Pollution didn't exist before also the 18th century. I mean, people burned wood, but it was moving things around within the biosphere. Fossil fuels as one source of pollution. We're taking something that's outside the biosphere and bring it inside the biosphere. However we shuffle around, once we brought it in, it's somewhere. And I guess before I talked to Maya, I was just thinking of something like the 13th Amendment. And and I'd studied a lot of how it passed, how it came to be, and started reading about, I guess, No Property Man. I don't know if you know Sean Wilentz and uh, James Oakes about Freedom National. And how, when they did, did, so in 1776, 13, correct me if I get any of the following wrong, that in 1776, roughly 13 slave colonies became 13 slave states. And then between 
between 1776 and the Constitution in 1787, there the northern states became free. And when they were debating what would go into the Constitution and when they were writing the Constitution, there were slave states that wanted slavery as part of the Constitution. And there were northern, uh, there were um, anti-slavery politicians who vehemently opposed that and did everything they could not to have that. And so I grew up reading it as three-fifths fugitive slave. That meant it was the slavery, the constitutional ad slavery. And I think that that's why William Lord Garrison burned the Constitution, saying it was packed with the devils. But Frederick Douglass said it was a glorious liberty document. And my understanding was that there was enough in it. And it, when you learn of how much people opposed in the in the right in the framing of the Constitution, how much people did everything they could to make it freedom national and slavery within certain states. That led me to wonder, is it possible that there was any debate about pollution? Now, I wouldn't expect there to be because there wasn't any pollution at the time. But could there, is there something? And I'm not saying could we interpret certain clauses that exist of due process or something like that. But was there something? And as far as I know, there wasn't in the U.S. when they were talking about that. But I came across John Locke's two treatises on government from 1689, in which he says, and it seems like a lot of the Constitution, it seems like a blueprint for Declaration of Independence and Constitution. Uh, it seems like a lot came from Locke. A lot came from a lot of places too, possibly the Iroquois. And when I read that, he saw that a major part, reason for government was to protect life, liberty, and property. And so what's property? And he says, he talks about if there's a, a, an apple on a tree and that tree is just in nature, that apple belongs to no one. But if I eat it, at some point it becomes mine. And, well, I guess I'm getting to this one part. Do you know the clause I'm about to say? That he said, you can't take from nature unless you leave, I hope I get it roughly right, enough as good in common for others. Which he illustrates by saying, like, if you drink from a river, and then I can still drink from it too, then we haven't, nature's still there. But the Colorado River doesn't reach the ocean anymore, nor do the Tigris and Euphrates, and the Jordan doesn't reach the Dead Sea. It seems to me that if part of the role of government is to protect life, liberty, and property, and a river not reaching the ocean seems that government has not been doing something that, if you agree with John Locke, and that's not the Constitution, but I think it, I think that the framers of the Constitution had in mind property, that idea, I call it the stewardship clause. I'm not sure that's the kind of property they had in mind. I think the kind of property that the framers had in mind were parcels of land and houses and horses and regrettably slaves. And the, uh, the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution says that uh, private property will not be taken without due process, without just compensation. And the there have been several attempts to argue that there is a federal constitutional right to a clean environment, uh, but that has not succeeded. I mean, the, the, it, in the Juliana case, which is a case something a little bit like held in Oregon, but based on the federal constitution, the trial court judge seemed to agree that there was a federal constitutional right to a clean environment. It went up on appeal to the Ninth Circuit, which by a two-to-one vote um, throughout 
the case, uh, the dissenting judge seemed to believe there was a federal constitutional right to a clean environment. But uh, that is that is not what the U.S. courts have said, and there there have not been successful efforts to argue that. And it uh, it may be in John Locke, but it's not in the Federalist Papers. Uh, we we don't see in the founding documents of this country a lot of uh, statements about the importance of clean air and clean water. There is a lot about protecting life, liberty, and property. Yes. So, but the kind of concept at that time was not that life, liberty, and property were endangered by pollution, right? Because pollution didn't exist yet. Yeah, there was very, there was smoke and so forth, and there were some filthy streams, but it was not a big issue yet. So, to people who oppose slavery, it seems like the Thirteenth Amendment reinforced what the Constitution really meant. For those who read it that way. Although you needed an amendment to get there. You needed an amendment to make it crystal clear that slavery was illegal. So you said it had been, Ill- it had been legal in, in most of the country. So if pollution destroys life, liberty, and property, the act of polluting, it's not... We would need an amendment to clarify that... One example is if I take something from outside the biosphere, oil, and bring it inside the biosphere... We can shuffle around all we want. At some point, it's going to pollute. At some point, it's going to hurt someone. It seems that an amendment that said you can't take things from nature in a way that destroys life, liberty, and property. No. Well, that and also, or that, or that does not leave enough as good in common for others. Blowing up a mountaintop to get things inside mining things in a way that leachate just comes out. It seems like a parallel to a 13th Amendment would clarify what I think was the idea in the first place. Had they known what that we would one day have Cancer Alley, that we would one day have sacrifice zones, it would need the clarification of an amendment. I mean, this is what, it's something that's driving me. Let me just say that many other countries around the world do have environmental provisions in their national constitutions, and most other countries have signed various international human rights treaties that guarantee the right to life. The right to life in the world of international law has different meaning than it does in the U.S. when it's about abortion. It's not about abortion. And, And we see quite a few decisions from international human rights bodies uh, saying that the right to life in the international human rights context includes the right to a stable environment. We've seen a number of domestic courts in other countries um, uh, saying that either their national constitutions or the treaties that their countries have signed or other provisions of those domestic laws uh, cover climate change, and that the the governments of those countries need to do much more to fight climate change. So we have important decisions. A seminal decision was from the Netherlands, but we now have decisions from Germany and France and Nepal and Mexico and Colombia and several other countries uh, declaring that, not the U.S., but we have a profusion, I don't want to say explosion, but a profusion of these uh, cases around the world. And there are now 
cases before the International Court of Justice in The Hague and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights and the European Court of Human Rights and the International Tribunal on Law of the Sea. All four of these international tribunals now have climate change cases before them, and we're likely to see decisions in the next year or two. And we're hopeful that these will be strong decisions that will declare that there is a fundamental human right to at least a stable climate system. Now, these courts, except for Europe, which is a slightly different situation, don't have binding power. However, their decisions are extremely influential in in domestic courts in many countries. Not the U.S., but outside the U.S., we think that if if there are good decisions from from these uh, courts, and I'm involved in that, we're about to file an amicus brief with the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, for example, that if there are good decisions from these, that that could yield a lot of positive action from a lot of courts around the world. You said a whole bunch, there's a whole lot to react to. If it's just focusing on climate, almost guaranteed we're going to start with the minerals and extinctions and, and deforestation, are they only looking at climate or are they also looking at net impact, total impact? Well, but of course, deforestation is a major cause of climate change. And, and uh, it is not saying only think about climate, throw out everything else. And there's also in some of these in discussion of biodiversity, for example, it's all it's all interrelated. But climate is the most sort of salient issue, the most immediately threatened threatening issue. And what bearing does this have on the U.S.? Only limited, because the U.S. courts have, frankly, not been very interested in international law. And the U.S. has not signed on to most of these human rights treaties that are the basis or one basis for a lot of the decisions in other countries. So it can have, a, it can have some political force among the people who take this kind of thing seriously. But if the International Court of Justice says that there's a fundamental human right to a clean environment, I don't think that this Supreme Court is going to care much. So as an American, as a citizen of New York State, I want a constitutional amendment. Oh, wait, we got one. Yeah. As a citizen of, of this nation, I feel like the same thing on a national level. Well, I'd love to have one, but we're so far away from having a political system that will get us there. Mm-hmm. I mean, when when young people ask me, what can I personally do that it would have the greatest impact on climate change? Mm-hmm. And I get that question a lot. I say, go to a swing state and engage in voter registration. Mm-hmm. That's what matters more than anything else. If we had a Democratic majority in the House, and if we had a stronger Democratic majority in the Senate, and if we were sure we were going to have a Democratic president after the next election... That would make all the difference in the world. That's what really matters. And so I think if young people who really want to have an impact, I think, engaged in, engaging in political activity, especially in, in swing states, has the greatest impact. I'll put up for your consideration, leading, you, you're saying Democrats, leading Republicans to also want these things. It used to be that the Republican... Yeah, restoring Republicans to that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, the, the, the Republican Party used to be very pro-environmental, and as I said, there was a bipartisan, very strong bipartisan support for all of the environmental statutes that were passed in the 70s and the 80s. But the current 
Republican Party as it now stands, at least the, the leadership and everybody who, most of the people they elect are in the opposite direction. And so under the current political situation, I think we need to put Democrats in place wherever we can. And I'd love someday to convert the Republicans. So I think, so I come to you as a law professor, you as a law professor. So from a leadership perspective, that, you know, I, I wouldn't say, here's an idea for amendment. Let's go to the House and, you know, get their gears in motion. It's got first overwhelming popular support. And for overwhelming popular support, first support. And, but I think that the vision of an amendment is, as a leadership tool, very important. Whether, you know, whether it can pass today or not, it could pass someday. I mean, the earliest I found the mention of a constitutional amendment on the abolition of slavery was 1827. And I think it would have been ludicrous at the time. I, people would have been, it probably sounded like a joke. And yet it passed. Now, it was all sorts of Herculean efforts and, and obviously the Civil War and Lincoln and his party doing all sorts of things that were everything possible. I mean, the kitchen sink. But having that vision, I think, was a key part of it. And so I think the idea of a, of a national, of a U.S. constitutional amendment, to me, is a really big tool of leadership, of the vision of it of it one day happening, of it uniting people in a way that the 13th Amendment did. I would be happy to have a statute on uh, passed by Congress that uh, has uh, very strong environmental protections, and it's a lot easier to get a statute passed than yeah. a constitutional amendment. The, the U.S. Constitution is extraordinarily difficult to amend. There have only been, what, 26... Eight amendments. I looked this up and I forgot. Okay, and, and whether you count the Equal Rights Amendment, anyway, it's it's the, uh, about that. They're very, very rare. So, if she thinks that's a powerful organizing tool, go for it. But um, I think it's it's much more remote than than statutes that will really do a great deal of good. We have seen the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and the. These other major environmental laws have done a great deal of good. The U.S. is immensely cleaner from a pollution standpoint than it was in 1970 before these laws were passed. So don't understate, underestimate the power of statutes passed by Congress and signed by a president. Well, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't see them as I see them as complementary and, and augmenting each other, not detracting from each other. Sure. Uh, it's, it's all a question of where each person chooses to devote their energies. Yeah, and this, since there's lots of people working on that, not enough, not nearly enough, but no one, very few working on this, it feels like the leverage is greater. I mean, I see, you know, Gavin Newsom is now campaigning for abolition of the Electoral College, uh -huh. which I think would also be a good thing. And it similarly doesn't have bright prospects, but he's campaigning for it. We'll see what happens. I feel like that's a, an amendment that's been in the works forever. Yeah. Yeah. As a major undermining, is it too much to say that undermining a democracy or I'm not on top of this one? Well, the idea of the Electoral College underlies, uh, undermines democracy because it leads to minority rule by the small states. So my takeaways here are that an amendment is really hard to conceive of. 
Well, it's, it's easy to conceive. It's hard to uh, the imagine passage. it being passed. Yeah. Right. right. But that, okay, that's big. I don't want to downplay that. But it's, if it were, it would be, I don't hear you saying it would be a useless tool. Like if somehow it did pass, it would be useful. Sure, of course. It might be supremely useful. I mean, yeah, I mean, there'd be huge questions about what it means. Does it mean no one can drive? That, that no one can eat beef? Um, what would it mean? And so you'd have huge fights over that. But but I agree it could accomplish a lot. Yeah, it would require people re-understand. If you think that the alternative to how we live now is the Stone Age, and that's all you can imagine, and that's a lot of people, then it feels like, oh, you want to return to the Stone Age or some Mad Max dystopia. But that there's not what it would... Well, so that would take some organization around. You'd need a lot of cultural change to get there. That's what this is about, is cultural change. If we simply... If I could make everything unpolluted and restore all the extinct species and everything back to pre-industrial levels, but we kept our culture we would restore our current conditions quickly. So in my view, we have to change our culture. And culture has changed in, in other ways. I mean, uh, you know, you're talking about smoking. It used to be same-sex marriage was uh, abhorrent to possibly to most people. Now, again, we're moving in the, in the wrong direction on, on that, but, but we, we've seen lots of examples of things that were used used to be an accepted part of the culture that have moved in a different direction. Mink coats used to be that it was very prestigious for women to wear mink coats. That has changed a lot. Another big one, corporal punishment of children, that it was just normal. And in many places it still is. And it's, imagine, I, sometimes I imagine if I lived in a world in which everyone around me felt that a way to show love to their child's was to hit them. And I said, maybe not. Let's not do that. I think people would look at me like I was crazy. I was they, If I didn't do it, I would be viewed as, as extreme. And now there are many countries in the world, in which it's, and in states in this country, where it's uh, teachers can hit children. and So it's not like it's gone from one extreme to another extreme. But I think there's a lot less violence to children. And that's a, another place where it probably would have seemed inconceivable. It probably would have seemed bad to people had it maybe a century or two ago. That I mean, the, you can quote the Bible of, of um, spare the rod. If you're not, yeah, if you're not hitting your child, you're not you're raising them poorly. Right. And I, I, I'm sure there are a lot of people who feel that way today still, but I feel like they're a lot smaller number. And if someone said we should not allow hitting children. I think there was a time when people would say that's a terrible idea. We're gonna have we just have purely spoiled kids. There's plenty of spoiled kids in the world today, but that's something where the shift was just so big and against what I think people at the time felt, and it feels like this could be like that. I very much hope you're right. Well, thanks for. Well, I mean, in the office and asking these questions, is there anything I didn't think to bring up? Or, I mean, I'm sure we could talk about this for a long time. Well, as I said, I think 
politics are central to to what happens. I think that uh, we're going to continue this profligate consumption until we have laws that make it much harder, we, whether it's a carbon tax or command and control. I, th I think that those are very important in addition to reduction in consumption. But American culture is so focused on the ideal of driving your car and having a single-family home and, and everything else that comes with the American way of life as we now know it, mm -hmm. uh, that it's, um, it'd be a profound cultural shift to to move away radically from those ideals. And uh, it uh, it can't happen soon enough, but I don't know when it's going to happen. Well, that's what I'm working on. Keep up the good work. Michael Gerard, thank you very much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.